morning, church. You can do better than that. I said, good morning, church. Welcome to uh, the second sermon in our relaunch sermon series. To commemorate this sermon, which is called Love God, I wore the shirt of my favorite football team. Some of you guys on the front, we got some Kansas guys here. This is a shirt of the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay, so we're in mixed company. I'm originally from Kansas. I got a confession to make, though. I'm not actually a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs. I bought the shirt. I bought the shirt simply because the Chiefs were in the playoffs. And those of you who are following the playoffs know that the Chiefs were playing the Patriots and the Chiefs got beaten, which was a tragedy for people who were Chiefs fans and not necessarily for me. But I decided to wear the shirt to demonstrate for you that loving something is more than just buying a shirt and cheering something on at one particular time when it's easy to cheer that thing on. As a matter of fact, if I'm really going to authentically love something, I've got to be willing to devote my entire life to the object of my love. I've got to be willing to honor not just one day or not just a particular season, but every single year, every single day of the year towards the honor, towards the item of my love. Jesus tells us plainly what that looks like if we really authentically love God. He actually takes all the commandments and summarizes them in just this simple phrase to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He takes that one step further by saying this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. According to Jesus, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's from this passage of Scripture in Matthew 22 that we here at the Worship Family Rescue Church, WFR Church, take our mission statement, which is to love God, to love others, and to share Jesus. Part of our relaunch is to really emphasize those three components of the mission of our church. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. We're going to really look at a man in the Scriptures who understood what authentic, true love was really about. This man is the Apostle Paul. He wasn't a fair-weather fan of God. He didn't simply claim to be God's man when it was easy, when he was winning, when the season was just right. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul knew what it meant to suffer and to struggle and to surrender in the midst of those sufferings and struggles and still stay committed. Our text this morning from Philippians 1 and 21 is really simple. The Apostle Paul says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I'm going to break that down into three parts this morning for you to help you walk away from this service today with a better understanding of what we mean at WFR Church when we say we want you to really love God with an authentic love. The Apostle Paul starts Philippians 1.21 by saying to me, to me, I've considered all other possible options. 
I've taken a look at different pathways that my life could travel down. I've analyzed and assessed and deliberated over which way I should travel. And to me, the only path that is worthwhile is the life and the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. To really live out the mission of loving God, the first thing that we have to do is to really seriously consider the nature of the mission. You know, it's something that's completely standard in business practice to have a mission statement. This would be a statement around which a business organizes everything it does. I've told you what our mission statement is here at WFR Church. Let me read you a couple of mission statements of some famous businesses nationally and globally. Here's Google's mission statement. Google's mission statement is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Lots of you, in fact, actually probably benefited from how effectively Google seems to be living out this mission statement this morning. If you're a visitor, you probably had to Google directions to uh, White's Ferry Road Church or WFR Church or the Duck Commander's uh, Church. And you found directions on Google to get you right here. So Google seems to be really living out their mission statement, having considered all possible ways to operate their business. That's the one they landed on. Here's the mission statement for Amazon.com. They say their goal is to be the Earth's most customer-centric company where people can find and discover anything they want to buy online. About this time last month, most of us benefited from how effectively Amazon seems to be living out their mission statement because we're Amazon Prime members buying last-minute Christmas gifts with guaranteed two-day free shipping. Amazon seems to be doing it right. These are companies that have taken time to consider what road to travel down and they orient every single thing they're doing in their business to fulfill that mission. The Apostle Paul lived just like this. If you flip to Philippians chapter 3, start in verse 4, he says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church... As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. In verse 7, he starts something profound here. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, I now consider, there's that key word, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul is somebody who had every reason to benefit from a life not lived and surrendered to Jesus. He says clearly here, as far as nationality, I was born in the right tribe. As far as education, I ran in the right circles. As far as religiosity is concerned, I was zealous to the point of persecuting the church. As far as obedience and commitment to my religion, in accordance to observing the law, I was faultless. If you understood Paul's day and time, what you'd realize is that his nationality, 
his political connections, and his lifestyle afforded him any and every opportunity you or I could imagine. He could have lectured and taught at all the most famous schools. He could have attended all the most popular parties. He could have fraternized with the religious leaders of his day, helped legislate certain decisions in his community. He could have had any lady, any house, or any connection that he wanted. And what he says is, after considering all of that, after really deliberating, after really putting some thought into it, what I realized is that all of those things that the world could have afforded me are just like garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 14? He said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able to win with 10,000 men and oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, will he, will he, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. For Jesus, the choice is obvious. That's why he's stating it so clearly, which is why we see it demonstrated so effectively in the life of the Apostle Paul. Anything you could gain, anything you could have in this life, any opportunity afforded to you is literally like garbage compared to the the unsurpassed value of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But you know, it's not enough just to say I've considered it and I choose Jesus. We've got to really commit to the mission. And who better to teach us about commitment in the midst of hardship than the Apostle Paul? He would say this about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Which, by the way, in Jesus' day, 40 lashes was a death sentence. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. And this is the guy who was politically as connected as he could have been. Religiously as, he could, as connected as he could have been. And academically as connected as he could have been. And he would suffer this kind of persecution and tragedy. And still say all other pathways I count as literally garbage. This is a man who was absolutely committed to his mission. But some of you are committed and you've experienced some of those hardships and the enemy has lied to you. He's told you the reason you're suffering and the reason you're struggling is because you're not good enough. He's told you it's because you just don't have what it takes. He's told you it's because you're not ever going to amount to anything in the kingdom of God. And friends, that is a lie from the pits of hell itself. You see, commitment to the mission, commitment to the mission is more vital than command of the method. Did you know that? Commitment to the mission is more vital than command of the method. In other words, you don't always have to be perfect in how you do your Christian walk. You just have to be committed to getting better and better. You don't have to have a doctorate in theology. Actually, God would say He's chosen the foolish of the things... Foolish things of the world to confound or shame the wise. 
and the weak things of the world to confound or shame the strong. You don't have to have a doctorate in theology to commit to the mission. You just have to have a commitment to get better theologically. You don't have to have philosophy all figured out. You just have to have a commitment to have God's philosophy and worldview for life. Your marriage doesn't have to be perfect. Your kids don't have to behave perfectly. Your bank account doesn't have to balance perfectly at the end of every month. You just have to be committed to your mission. Even if sometimes you don't always have command of the method. So what is the method? Let's continue on in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. Paul says, to me, to me I've considered and I've committed and to me to live. For me, to live is Christ. Literally, my life, I want to be dedicated to and replicated of the life of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean if I'm going to replicate the life of Jesus? I think that means three things this morning. And the way Paul's written it here gives us the opportunity to plug in a verb to help us better understand what that phrase To live as Christ. Here's an example. I think the first thing we would do if we replicated the life of Christ is we would love others like Jesus Christ. So for Paul then, to live is to love like Christ. That's how you would plug that verb love in the sentence. To live is to love like Christ. And what is the love of Jesus Christ like? First, it's the kind of love that loves people who are unlovable. It's the kind of love that loves people who are unlovable. Now, when we hear that teaching in churches today, we usually think about the people who are are outcasts from society. People who are maybe addicted to drugs and alcohol or who suffer with mental illness or, or poverty. And we usually think to love the unlovable would mean to get out of our comfort zone and love those kinds of people who we've had no previous experience with but whose society has not taken time to engage in a, loving, in a loving way. But I want you to consider it differently this morning. Who is the person in your life that you despise the most? Maybe it's an ex. Maybe you've been through a divorce and that's the person in life that's most unlovable to you. Maybe it's a mom or a dad who suffered from an addiction And to this day, they're still the most unlovable person in your life. Maybe it's a son or daughter that you've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in, and they're still struggling with drugs and alcohol and entitlement and arrogance and pride and blaming all their problems on you. Maybe that's the person that's most unlovable. You see, I think it's easier almost to love people who are deemed unlovable by society as long as they're a few degrees removed from you emotionally. But the people who are right in my emotional backyard that are unlovable, those are the ones who are really tough. Jesus was best at loving on those kinds of individuals. And loving God, loving like Jesus loved, not only means loving the unlovable in your life, but it also means loving that person unconditionally. Not if they change their behavior and start to see the hundreds of thousands of dollars you've invested in their recovery. Not if they finally admit that for 30 years of your life they've been disengaged as a result of drugs of drugs and alcohol. Not if they finally come back and admit the reason the marriage terminated was because they had an affair and they were in the wrong and you were in the right and they're sorry. You're supposed to love them without condition. The other piece of the replication of the life of Jesus Christ is to give like Christ. Not just to love like Him, but to give like Him. 
I, I work with families all, all the time, and, I, and inevitably I'll get some big, you know, burly country guy in my office. And I'll say, you know, can you guys tell me you know, how good your marriage is on a scale from 1 to 10? And, you know, these kinds of guys, they like sort of sit back, thumbs in their, you know, camo uh, overalls, which is how it's done here in Louisiana. And, and they say, well, how high does the scale go? And I'm kind of like rolling my eyes, knowing already what the wife is going to say based on the husband's attitude. I'm like, let's just say 10. He's like, 11. And, and, and she's like, and she's like, it's it's a three. And this guy will look at her kind of inevitably and make some kind of comment along these lines, honey. I I just don't see how you could say that. I mean, I would give my life for you. I w- I would take a bullet for you. And I don't want to diminish how honorable and admirable that is to me, because I very much honor and admire that quality in a man who would be willing to take a life, uh, to, to give his life. Uh, sorry, maybe a... <laughs> who would be willing to give his life for his wife. But I think, I think even more, I think even more useful would be him giving of his life in surrender to her Every single day. And not just one moment in time. And that's the majesty and power of the life of Jesus Christ. Yes, the cross is magnificent beyond compare. But maybe even more magnificent is the 33 years he lived being tempted in all ways like we are. And yet remaining without sin. Not only do we have to love like Christ and give like Christ to replicate the life of Christ, we have to suffer like Christ suffered. The book of Isaiah, in a prophetic portion of Scripture, calls Him a man of sorrow. And if you're really going to walk the way of the cross in your life, and you're really going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you really are going to have to deny self, take up cross, and follow Him. You're really going to have to do that. And that's really going to mean giving up some of the comforts and opportunities in this world to take hold of some of the opportunities given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. And often you won't win the popular vote and you'll be slandered by society and society would have you to believe you're missing out and that will involve a measure of suffering. But you have to be up to that task if you are really to live the life and replicate the life of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you're given lots of opportunity to dedicate your efforts of love and giving and suffering to dedication to Jesus Christ. What does the word dedicate mean? If you look it up in a dictionary, there are two meanings that are most common in the English language, the way we use it in our everyday vernacular. The first is to devote life to a particular purpose. And that's kind of the point of what we've been saying today. Every minute, every hour... Every day, every week, every month, every year, living in in total devotion to Jesus. But the other meaning is this, to perform a certain task or phenomenon in a person's honor. And that's the most meaningful to me. That's how we find purpose in our pain. If I'm living the way of the cross and I suffer as a result, I can dedicate that pain to the honor of the Lord God and thus be blessed by Him knowing that I am living a life that honors and glorifies God. And that's the purpose for which I've been created. 
A favorite movie of mine is a movie called Eight Seconds. I'd like to see a show of hands. How many of you have ever seen the movie Eight Seconds? God bless all y'all. Now, I love it because I'm a wannabe rodeo guy. These guys are the manliest, studliest guys on the planet. And I'm kind of a delicate sort of flower. You can ask my wife. And so seeing these men that are like these masculine guys ride bulls is not appealing to me like I would want to do it, but vicariously feel like I can participate in by watching it. The movie Eight Seconds is the story of a bull rider named Lane Frost. Spoiler alert coming up. Lane was killed one day after he was bucked off and steered by a bull. Lane's best friend and traveling uh, companion was a man named Tuff Hedeman who was shaken up by his loss. A year later, Tuff was riding for the 1989 National Bull Riding Championship. To win, Tuff had to ride a bull for eight seconds. The bull Tuff, Tuff drew was a tough one, and Tuff did, in fact, ride the bull for the eight seconds. But to the amazement of the crowd, however, Tuff didn't jump off the bull when the eight-second buzzer went off. He kept riding. He rode for Lane, and after his breathtaking championship ride, he dedicated the ride to Lane. What if you started using the struggles and trials in your life in dedication to honor God your Father? If you could do that, if you could develop the discipline to really use even your most painful moments, even your longest nights in deepest valleys for the glory of God, you would learn the secret of finding joy and peace and hope and purpose in the midst of suffering. That's ultimately the meaning of loving God, and that's how the Apostle Paul concludes his statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 21. He says, to die for me... The greatest suffering of all, even death, to me is gain. I've considered all possible options and I'm committed to the mission to replicate the life of Jesus Christ and dedicate all my sufferings and trials and tragedies to glorify and honor Him. And I know that if I live that kind of life, the way of the cross, that death even is gain to me. You know, there are some really interesting paradoxes of the Christian faith. If you read Scripture carefully, you'll have read some of these. The first that came to my mind in preparation for this is that we shouldn't overcome evil with evil, but should overcome evil with good. That seems paradoxical. When somebody cuts me off in traffic, my first instinct is to speed around them and cut in front of them and then put on my brakes. It's, it's, it's therapeutic for me to admit that to you. This is healing. And it's life-giving to me. How about this? Jesus says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So often in my life, I'm in competition with the person next to me or, or, or in front of me or in, behind me, wanting to maintain the cutting edge, wanting to be valued more, wanting to be better, wanting to, in my own mind, feel worth more. And Jesus says, no way. If you want to finish first, you really got to learn how to finish last. We talked about this a little bit indirectly earlier. Jesus also said, in me, if you really want to save your life, you have to lose it. It seems like it doesn't make sense, but given our context this morning, we realize that it's only when I lose my affections in the life that I'm living here on this earth do I actually save myself to a spiritual end. This is Paul's intent in the last part of his statement for us this morning. 
To die is gain. Think about this. If in your life you can get to the point where you love God so much that even death to you is gain, no one can defeat you. If you can get your life to the point where for you, even to die is gain, then no one can defeat you. No one could best the Apostle Paul. You can't win with a man who even would say, death to me is gain. The religious leaders of his day had every reason to silence him. He was usurping their hierarchy, and it meant that all their country club memberships and all their fraternity parties and all the backroom deals they were doing with bankers and movers and shakers of their day would cease to exist if you could really get to God through Jesus. And what did they do to him? They beat him up. They lashed him. They stoned him, left him for dead at one point in time. And nothing discouraged him from living for Jesus Christ. Because for him really to die was gain. That's what our story being written by Christ is all about. Hebrews 12.2 actually calls Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Friends, when the author of your story loves you and has given his life for you, there are some guarantees in life. The first is that God is in control of everything that happens to you. And so he's going to use everything that you've been through for your good and for the good of those around you. Another truth is that he's going to make you more than a conqueror. Whatever the problem is you face in life today, right now, that's most pressing. The fact, the promise, the guarantee is, as a part of your script, you're going to be more than a conqueror of that particular issue. God's going to guide you definitively, guaranteed, on pathways of righteousness. You just got to love Him. And if you'll really love Him, if you'll really surrender and commit to the mission and follow the method of replication and dedication, not only will your story be written by Christ, but your ending will be with Jesus Christ Himself. If you remember no other scripture that I've read to you this morning than this one, I want you to write it down. I want you to reflect on it this week. This is Revelation 21.4. This is what it's going to be like as far as Scripture tells us when we get to be with Jesus. Scripture tells us that Jesus is going to wipe every single tear away from our eyes. And there's not going to be any more death or mourning or crying or any more pain. For the old order of things is going to be passed away. And working with families week to week, this is a Scripture that gives me an indescribable amount of comfort. And what I do week in and week out is I replace that word pain in Revelation 21.4 with whatever malady is thrown at me at any given moment in time in my week. Let me give you an example. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or cancer. There will be no more death, mourning or crying or infidelity. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or addiction, or depression, or losing a loved one, or bipolar disorder, or attention deficit disorder, or learning disabilities, or any other thing in this life that causes us a measure of pain. All those things will fade away because they're of the old order. And Jesus Christ is going to make everything brand new. 
That's what our ending with Jesus will be like. Writers over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia, have tried to put words to what this experience will be like. Eliza Hewitt was injured on the job and she was in a body cast for a number of months, bedridden, left by herself with only her thoughts. As she gets out of the body cast, she grabs a pen and she writes these words about what our ending with Jesus in heaven will be like. She puts it like this. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing His mercy and His grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of Him in glory will the toils of life repay. Onward to the prize before us, soon His beauty will behold. Soon the pearly gates will open. We shall tread the streets of gold. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we're going to sing. And we are going to shout the victory. Are you living in victory this morning, friend? Are you hearing me? Are you living in victory? If you're not, I invite you to fall more deeply in love with God today. I'm going to conclude with a prayer. And when I'm finished, I invite you to stand while we sing. And if there is a need in your life, please bring it forward. We want to pray over you and love on you today. Let's pray. Lord, bless those who are here this morning. Anyone that has a need, I ask that you'd empower them to fall more deeply in love with you. And I ask that you would empower us as a church to fall more deeply in love with them and with you as well. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.